This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Mole, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Matthew Bowman teaches history at Bowling Green State University. He's the author of The Mormon People, The Making of an American Faith, and he holds the Ph.D. in American History from Georgetown University. His most recent work is The Urban Pulpit, New York City and the Fate of Liberal Evangelicalism. Matthew Bowman, welcome to Thinking in Public. Professor Bowman, your new book, The Urban Pulpit, New York City and the Fate of Liberal Evangelicalism, raises an interesting question just in terms of the subtitle. I think it would be really important for you to find what you mean by your subtitle. What is the liberal evangelicalism you're writing about in this book? Sure. Uh, Liberal evangelicals are, well, it's a term I use because they used it themselves. I take the term from Henry Sloan Coffin, um, who was a pastor in New York for many years, president of Union Theological Seminary. In 1915, he gave a speech called The Practical Aims of a Liberal Evangelicalism. And what he seems to have wanted to do, he and also I think his fellows, um, who are mostly pastors, was to find a middle way, a middle way between this emerging fundamentalist movement um, that they saw over to their right, but also... um, away from an increasingly technocratic, progressive movement of social and cultural reformers who were relying on things like sociology and social work. And um, Coffin wanted to blend the two, to find this sense of social reform, of activism, of the relevance of Christianity in the modern world, but also, on the other hand, to avoid what um, Harry Emerson Fosdick later called the outworn sectarianisms of fundamentalism. They wanted to preserve this vitalizing personal power of Christ, but also make it relevant for the modern world. Um, This was, in an America that was getting polarized then and is polarized now, certainly, uh, a hard middle ground to find, but it's something they fought for. Yeah, I found the book really interesting, and I've recommended it to many people, by the way, and uh, it's being discussed in places I hope that would encourage you. Uh, But uh, I'll be honest, I understood, I think, what you meant by liberal evangelicalism more at the end of the book than at the beginning, and Mm -hmm. uh, I'll get to that in a moment, And uh, because you end it in a way that I I think really helps to put it in perspective. But on the way, uh, I think one of the strengths of your book is you, you tell an incredible story, a story that involves New York as a city as much as uh, the other developments. And uh, so, so how did you get onto this? Uh, you know, how did you decide at, uh, at what I think was, was Georgetown University, doing a Ph.D., to write about these Christian figures or, or figures of institutional Christianity uh, in New York City at this time? What caught your attention? Sure. Uh, you know, I started um, with a sermon, a sermon that I actually began the book with, that Harry Emerson Fosdick delivered at Riverside Church in 1931. And it was a a very interesting sermon, I think. I think there was a whole generation of scholarship on Christianity in America in this period, the late 19th, early 20th century, and it tended to fall into this two-party thesis. That is, there are liberals, and there are fundamentalists, and they are at war with each other, and so on. Um, But in this sermon that Fosdick gave in 1931, um, it was very much, I think, an elegy for fundamentalism. It was, it was um, I think, to borrow a term from Christopher Stendhal, uh, he used to be dean of Harvard Divinity School, it was a sermon that had a great deal of holy envy in it. 
Um, here's Harry Fosdick, the, the dean of the, of, of the Protestant left, of liberal Protestant in America, saying that he envied the fundamentalists. He lambasted his own people, um, whom he called the liberals or the modernists. Um, he criticized them for defining themselves by what they did not believe. And he said, I've got a quotation here, he said, the fundamentalists did not join so many committees as we do, but they understood better the meaning of prayer. Sometimes, in consequence, there emerged a personal spiritual power that put us to shame. Um, and that really caught my attention, because I, I think so much of what's been written about Protestantism in America in the 20th century falls into the trap of being really political history told simply yeah. through a, a religious lens. I wanted to get at what it meant to these people to be religious, um, what it meant to them to worship, um, what it meant to them to be Christians in the world, New York City, as um, they found themselves. And so that drew me both into the city, but also into, I hope, the religious lives of these people. And I found there that the lines were much more blurred on yeah. the ground than um, scholars tend to think they are. Well, as tempting uh, as it would be right now to jump into a figure as uh, interesting as Fosdick, and we'll get to him, uh, I want to go back mm-hmm. to the earlier section of your story, where you begin it really with uh, almost a period immediately after the Dutch uh, uh, era of, of New York, when you're talking about the 19th century, and you even talk about how the churches, given the changes in the city, had to start moving progressive or, or chose to move progressively northward, which mm-hmm. uh, quite honestly explains a lot of the, of the historic uh, church buildings in New York City to me. When I read your book, I said, okay, I understand now. <laughs> and, and, yeah. and explain that. What, why were these churches moving progressively northward in the city? Well, you know, um, by the mid-late 19th century, um, many, many, many pastors um, in New York felt that they were in a crisis. Uh, and it was a particularly galling crisis to them, because early on, um, they believed that they had conquered the city. Um, there are all sorts of denominational histories and congregational histories written in the mid-19th century, praising Protestants for subduing the city, for making New York this ideal evangelical location. And what begins to happen in the mid-19th century are a number of things. But I think most pressing is increasing waves of immigration. Now, there had always been immigration, certainly, and even though Protestants thought they had conquered the city, they were never even the majority of the population of it. Um, But they really had believed that they had subdued it, and now suddenly there are hordes upon hordes of Catholics, of Jews, of even non-churched people moving into the city. And they're finding increasingly these old Protestant churches are finding that the people who are supporting them, the people who are paying their pew rents, the people who are sitting in their pews are moving north um, to get away from the poverty on the southern end of Manhattan, um, to get away from these neighborhoods that are seeming increasingly unfamiliar to them, and they are finding new homes up increasingly towards where Central Park is today. So these churches and these ministers are in a real bind because their pews are increasingly emptying. People are not wanting to travel all the way down Manhattan. And so over and over, they're having to close their churches. Um, Oftentimes, they end up having to sell their churches to uh, Roman Catholics, which galls them, um, and to move north, to build new church houses up there. And this really creates in them a sense of crisis, a sense of that we had thought that we had it all together, that we had 
won the city, but now we don't, and we don't really know what to do. You know, when you talk about these churches moving north, you mentioned that, that some tried to remain, and uh, as they move north, they're, they're clearly keeping uh, track, so to speak, with these population movements. But you also, as you just did, point out the uh, the waves of immigration, waves of immigration that were overwhelmingly uh, Irish and Italian by the time you get to the mm-hmm. second half of, of the 19th century. And and you write something that, that – and, and that's one of the things I, I really enjoy about reading a book like yours because I've, I've tried to read everything I get my hands on for, for – almost uh, 35 years uh, in this, uh, this era, and uh, you're always, I always learn something new. For instance, uh, I had not been aware that these Lord's Day associations were in so many ways fueled by an anti-Catholicism, and uh, you tell mm-hmm. that story really, really well. It, it was because it was, it was trying to shut down Catholic uh, Sunday parades. Yes, certainly. You know, and I think this gets at a deeper issue um, that I see in what's going on in Protestantism generally at the end of the 19th century is this, this real discomfort with liturgy, um, with ritual, with kind of high church rites, and certainly that's what the Catholics are doing. Um, there are many, many Catholic associations, um, fraternal associations who hold parades on Sunday, which they take to be you know, honoring the saints, honoring Mary, honoring Christ. Um, many churches host them as well, and the Protestants see this, and they, and they see um, garish blasphemy. And there's a, a really, really large clash there and a discomfort with what these Catholics are doing, but more with what their city is becoming. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, there's, the landscape of the city is very important to these Protestants. And, and they imagine you know, that 100 years prior to this, the, the, every block would be dotted with a Presbyterian or a Baptist or a Methodist church, um, that the streets would be quiet on Sundays, and now they're not. Um, the city's becoming a foreign place, and that really distresses them. Yeah, I think one thing I thought of when I was reading uh, the, those chapters of your book was particularly the, uh, the fact that the, the form of Protestantism that really uh, marked the earliest eras of New York were Dutch Calvinism, and, and then a, a, a rather Puritan-informed uh, form of, uh, of congregationalism and Anglicanism, and, and, and such. You, you had a very Puritan understanding of the Lord's Day, running mm-hmm. into a head-on collision with the uh, Catholic pageantry of Sunday, and uh, that mm-hmm. must have been a real strain there in, uh, in, in that era of New York City. Yeah, precisely, precisely. You know, and, and, and it's interesting that their Protestants are thinking about the city as their own. Um, they're thinking uh, that it's their responsibility to maintain the public morals of the city. It's their responsibility to ensure that the cultural life of the city is righteous. And you know, they certainly have their own um, public displays, um, most notably in uh, the revivals that many of them trace their ancestry to back in the First Great Awakening, and then certainly um, the Second Great Awakening, and, and by the late 19th century, Dwight Moody and others. Um, but the Catholic, what the Catholics are doing seems to them very, very strange. Now, there are, uh, are a couple of chapters in which you deal with things that uh, also surprised me somewhat, and uh, I was glad to read. Uh, one of them was uh, your explanation of how many of these tensions were transformed into church architecture, so that you had, mm-hmm. uh, you had a, a, a shift from the, uh, the, the more meeting house shape uh, that, uh, although rather large in a lot of New York City churches, was still recognizable in terms of a, of a congregational church in New England— and and then all of a sudden you get the Romanesque and you get the quite theatrical. You end up uh, eventually with uh, urban cathedrals, even evangelical cathedrals like Calvary Baptist Church there in Manhattan. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I, I should uh, credit uh, Gene Hollegren Kill's 
wonderful book, When Church Became Theater, for yeah. my inspiration for this. Uh, but I look particularly at two churches, um, the Brick Presbyterian Church, which was then pastored by Henry Van Dyke, and as you say, Calvary Baptist, which was then led by Robert MacArthur. And they, they do renovations or um, at almost precisely the same time, or I should say that Calvary Baptist builds a new building at the same time that uh, Van Dyke is renovating his church. And, you know, I, I found these parallel stories interesting because they're doing their renovations for very similar reasons, uh, but they go in different directions. Both of them are concerned with the landscape of the city. They're, they want a new church that will um, allow them to maintain a foothold where they are, and, and as MacArthur puts it, to proclaim the word um, to the city by virtue of the building. But they do go in very different uh, styles. Van Dyke's brick church, of course, becomes very, very um, Byzantine. Um, he consciously is trying to imitate the art of um, the Christian past. He's trying to evoke the Christian past, and thus planting his church and his congregation, this great history of Christianity that goes back into the Middle Ages and before. Um, so there's a very strong sense, I think, of community for Van Dyke. He wants his church to be warm, to be inviting. He uses deep, rich colors dark gold coffering, and so on and so forth. MacArthur, on the other hand, um, is a Baptist. And as a Baptist, he's very interested in the Word. And, and this thing that struck me about Calvary Baptist, you know, I went up there, I, I looked at the church, I took some pictures of it, is how Word-covered it is, quite yeah. literally. You know, above the doors, emblazoned words, we preach Christ crucified. Inside, um, there are stained-glass windows, to be sure, but they're also full of text. Um, Van Dyke, or I'm sorry, not Van Dyke, um, MacArthur calls this, church a sermon in stone and he means that quite literally he says we are showing the word to manhattan um in our building as well as proclaiming it through our words you know that's something that uh, that's something that uh, southern evangelicals Mm -hmm. often uh uh, fail to uh to either see or to remember uh i was uh in college days on staff at the first baptist church of birmingham alabama which was a romanesque building it 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 was the Mm -hmm. last picture you would uh, draw out as a stereotypical southern baptist building right right here in uh in uh, louisville we have uh, the very large walnut street baptist church again very romanesque with lewis comfort Mm -hmm. tiffany windows and and people forget that these were built as urban cathedrals by evangelicals indeed the the uh, Mm -hmm. book you mentioned uh, when church became theater as i recall uh, if not the cover picture, then one of the prominent pictures that is on that book is of, I think, Jarvis Street in Toronto. Uh, these are very yes. evangelical churches, but they really did yes. see the church as uh, as making a statement, the building. Yeah, precisely, precisely. And I think, um, you know, even in these differing styles they have, they both, as you say, are cathedrals. They're large, they're Romanesque, they're impressive, and they should be seen, I think, in New York at least, as a real kind of defiant stand against this kind of tide of, of immigrants um, that are very, very foreign to these Protestants. Yeah, one of the favorite stories I've, I've had uh, some f- uh, people in New York City tell me um, uh, is of the, uh, the immigrants, especially the Italian and Irish children, giving up their lunch money to help build St. Saint, Saint Patrick's Cathedral. Mm-hmm. Uh, knowing that a, a major physical statement like that was and is now over 100 years old, what was and is making a statement about what the contest for uh, the soul of New York was going to look like. Precisely, you know, and, and uh, other groups as well. You know, I, I talk briefly about the Christian scientists in the book who are building yeah. their own buildings, a very, very large one on Central Park West. Monumental. And this is kind of an age in which they are competing, you know, to erect yeah. 
buildings that are as impressive as the next denominations down the block. You know, the other thing I want to mention before we get to some of the people is uh, how you very interestingly trace the, the threat of the theater, the, uh, the, the rise mm-hmm. of an entertainment culture in New York City as a direct mm-hmm. threat to that kind of evangelical moral, uh, the, the picture they had of, of what the city sh- should be. Yeah, precisely. You know, and, and this is, again, I think something that is shared both by um, these Protestants who will begin calling themselves fundamentalists by the 1920s, but also, I think, by these more liberal evangelicals, people like Coffin. Um, there is a fear, I think, that um, the word is being drowned out. It's being drowned out by theater, um, and many of them see theater as a direct competition, a um, a precise competition with the pulpit. Um, John Roach Straton, who is a great kind of fundamentalist preacher, calls the theater a satanic pulpit, and he means that quite literally, um, that the theater is proclaiming morals that he finds distressing. It's proclaiming a world without Christ. Um, but also, I think it's a comp- um, entertainment culture is a competition to the Bible as well. There is a growing, growing tide of newsprint in this city. Newspapers are becoming increasingly popular. The penny press is rising um, and is selling, selling many, many books. So people are not reading the Bible anymore. People are going to the theater instead of to the church house. Um, it is a threat to their way of life and one that both liberals and evangelicals fear. To look at a major American city is to see its church history as well. Matthew Bowman gives us so many key insights into looking at New York City, in particular to Manhattan, and showing us how the history of that city, in terms of its churches, tells us a great deal about the religious transformations that took place not only in that city, but in the larger context of the United States. In particular, he helps us to follow waves of immigration that led to churches, especially those of the established denominations, moving further and further away from the original population center of the city of Manhattan. And then as you follow Manhattan's development, you also see major developments in American religious life. We can follow the impact of the Second Great Awakening. We can see the impact of certain kinds of theological developments that came along. Matthew Bowman helps us to understand those changes. And, of course, embedded in the very title of his book is a very interesting compound, liberal evangelicalism. And to talking about what he means by liberal evangelicalism and talking about those liberal evangelicals, we now turn. Well, now on to the people. Because uh, the cast of characters in your book is one of the most interesting I have encountered in any recent monograph. And uh, that's one of the reasons why I commend it. You begin and end in a a very real way with Harry Emerson Fosdick. And uh, I I just have to say, I find him one of the most fascinating figures of American church history. And you write of Mm -hmm. him quite sympathetically. And and I think Mm -hmm. at the end of the book, I understood more of of what you were doing. You really do see him as something of the... the progenitor and the, the model of a uh, an idea that didn't happen. But you're quite elegiac mm-hmm. about the fact that it, it didn't, if I'm reading you correctly. That This sure. idea of yeah. this liberal evangelicalism that, that, that you say Fosdick mm-hmm. uh, represented. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I, I feel Fosdick is, you know, he because he did himself assert that he, he was an advocate for something he called modernism, um, he is often, I think, characterized as a non-evangelical. Right, as sort of a forerunner of what would today be called the Protestant main line. Um, but I don't think he saw himself that way. 
Um, he does get in trouble. He is, he is a Baptist. He's preaching in the early 1920s in a Presbyterian pulpit, um, and he throws down the gauntlet against um, conservative Protestant theology and, and gets his church in a, a whole um, boiling pot of trouble for a while and then eventually resigns. But during that period of trouble, when um, his Presbyterian church is being investigated for orthodoxy, he declares that if I did not consider myself an evangelical Christian, I would not be preaching in an evangelical pulpit. So he does imagine himself as an evangelical. He claims the word. He wants the label for himself. But at the same time, he believes um, that evangelicals should not have to believe in the, you know, the five points of yeah. um, Presbyterian orthodoxy that are passed um, in the General Assembly a few years before, um, and things like the virgin birth and the uh, bodily resurrection of Christ, things like that. Um, and he does not seem to have trouble holding those two ideas both in his mind, that he can be an evangelical who does not believe in the virgin birth. Um, and he's trying very, very hard to maintain that middle ground. Well, I've been fascinated um, with Fosdick ever since uh, I was a seminarian, first started reading about him. And, uh, and, and quite honestly, I would never have described him as an evangelical, uh, mm-hmm. but because he is so steeped in, in modernism and so committed to it. I think the first thing I read by Fosdick was his Beecher lectures at Yale, uh, and that's throwing mm-hmm. down the gauntlet, kind of like his yeah. Shall the Fundamentalist Win uh, uh, right. uh, message. Mm-hmm. But when I got to the end of your book, I, un- I think I understand what you're doing in, in terms of using the word, and, uh, and-, and Fosdick did uh, represent at least an understanding of, uh, uh, of the need of a distinctively Christian word, a distinctively Christian mm-hmm. influence. And if I'm understanding you correctly, you're, you're identifying that as evangelical over against the, the more, um, well, how can I say, uh, the, the less Christocentric, the less explicitly Christian uh, leaders of the day. Sure. You know, Fosdick does not make the distinction. He uses the words liberal Protestant or liberal evangelical and modernist interchangeably, but I find it useful to make that distinction. Um, and what interests me about Fosdick and also about Henry Sloan Coffin or Henry Van Dyke or these other people I'm speaking of is that, is that they're pastors. And I, I think that's a very, very important distinction. Many of those who I call modernists in the book, oh, people like, say, Shiler Matthews or Gerald Bernie Smith, um, end up in, in academia. And Charles Augustus um, Briggs. Teaching, yes, and Briggs as well, Briggs who, you know, had not a bone of pastoralism in him. Um, but they are, you know, they're ending up in, in divinity schools, and they are teaching. I think there's something about being in the pulpit for a Fosdick or a Coffin that really makes them feel, you know, tugged both ways. Well, um, I'm, I'm going to fast-forward you here in order, we'll retrack in, in just a moment, but sure. when you reach the end of your book, another Coffin uh, that I, uh, I actually had the opportunity to meet more than once, that's William Sloan mm-hmm. Coffin, uh, mm-hmm. he... As uh, as you portray him as kind of the uh, the death as as uh, I, I guess he'd be the what the third successor from Fosdick at the Riverside Church he's he's kind of the death of that vision in terms of your understanding of him even mm-hmm. though his uncle was the one who uh, you credit with coining the term of this liberal That's evangelicalism. Right. Yeah, um, William Coffin is very interesting, and I think he was a very very you know, suitable person to close the book with because. He represents the evolution of so many of these ideas that I see being born um, in the early 20th century. Um, he does not use the word evangelical, hardly at all. Um, he does not claim it for himself. The word he does use quite frequently, though, is prophet. Um, and that word really struck me as well, 
because it is a word that is invoked quite frequently by conservative Protestants, people like Straton, um, fundamentalists 60 years previous. Um, and so in some ways there's some swapping of vocabulary here, and I think that swapping represents a level of comfort in society um, that by the, by the 1980s, Coffin doesn't feel anymore. Um, he's lost, I think, that sense of spiritual vitality um, that Fosdick thought was so important. Um, for Coffin, that's somewhat gone because he's not interested in the word evangelical, but he is interested in social transformation. But from a perspective, that means he's, he feels very lonely, I yeah. think. He feels as though he's railing against a corrupt and an evil world, which is, of course, precisely what someone like John Roach Straton was feeling 60 years previous. And there's an interesting contrast to be made, I think, between um, the second coffin and Billy Graham. Um, Billy Graham, who rejects the word prophet um, by the time he comes to New York in 1957, and instead, I think, finds himself very comfortable in the city. Um, yeah. So in part, I think uh, there's been a lot of swapping going on, and it is, in some ways, I think, someone like Graham who understands what Fosdick is doing better than Coffin does. So the institution that uh, that I lead as president and uh, have for uh, over 20 years it, you know, intersects at so many points here because uh, this, this has to be one of the only places on planet Earth, given the, uh, the twists and turns of our own institutional history, where John mm-hmm. Roach Straton would have been a student and William Sloan Coffin would have been a lecturer. <laughs> and, uh, and so you put all that together, uh-huh. and you think something's going to have to explain this strange amalgam. But by the For time sure. I met Coffin as a student, he was, I would say, first of all, one of the most engaging speakers I've ever met in my life. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. you, I think you could listen to him read out of the phone book. And yes. uh, the, the second, which he would have done with great passion, by the way. And the second thing was, mm-hmm. if, if he did not have the title of, uh, uh, and then he, I think he was uh, retiring as a senior pastor of the, uh, of the Riverside Church, or was in his latter years, I would never have identified him as a pastor because he didn't speak like any pastor I'd ever heard before. You would, he, yeah. he never really talked about anything spiritual. Uh, it was, uh, mm-hmm. he, he, was, he was more concerned with nuclear disarmament at that point. Yes, and, and he's quite uncomfortable with that. And he admits it, quite frankly, I guess, I suppose, to his credit. Um, he admits that he's, he's not very interested in being a pastor. He's not very interested in, I think, the, you know, the mundane day-to-day work of running a church, of counseling with people, of things like that. Um, he instead, I think, is, is very much interested in being that prophetic figure, um, and Riverside provided him a pulpit from which to do that. So the two-party understanding of, uh, of American Protestantism in the 20th century with the fundamentalist modernist breach, uh, N- New York is a microcosm of that, and, and you deal with so many of these people. You've got Briggs on one side, mm-hmm. and, then, and then later Fosdick and, and William Sloan Coffin and Van Dyke, and on the other side, you've got a, a, a cast of characters, including John Roach Straton and MacArthur, and, and, and so many others. And, uh, you know, and by the way, your, your, your treatment of John Roach Straton reminded me of what I had forgotten, and that was, you know, how strange some of these characters were. And I, I say this, he, uh, mm-hmm. he, he, did, he did attend the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, though he did not graduate, yeah. which back then didn't matter a whole lot. You could get a teaching job without graduating. Mm-hmm. Evidently, mm-hmm. he went and taught at a college in Texas. But I, I had forgotten that he had had this uh, strange fascination with a 12-year-old girl preacher whom yes. he defended preaching <laughs> in his own pulpit. Yes, yes, he did. And, you know, I, and that comes, I think, at a point in his career. That's only, you know, a few years before his death, um, where I think he is feeling very desperate. I think Straton felt all of these pressures of the modern city as acutely as anybody. And 
Whereas someone like Fosdick tries very hard, I think, to adapt and to find ways to keep this evangelical spirit alive, um, Straton simply redoubles his efforts. He doubles down on preaching the word, and he really develops, I think, a sense of himself as a prophetic figure, as someone who is possessed by the word of God. And that notion of the word, of the preached word, which is a scandal, you know, as Paul says, right, that the gospel is, is, should be scandalous, really, really sinks into him. And something that really fascinates him about Oldine Utley, who is this young Pentecostal preacher and a, and a young girl as well, is how successful she is at converting people. Um, she preaches in front of crowds, and people drop to their knees and confess Christ. And Straton finds that very, very powerful. And what's very interesting to me about him is that he brings her to his pulpit. He brings her to New York. She preaches from, um, from his church. And, of course, this is something that horrifies many of his fellows um, who don't believe that a woman should preach. Um, but Straton tells them, all the reason we need to allow her to preach is in how effective she is. She preaches the word better than some of you, is what he tells some of these other preachers. That real commitment that he has yeah. to the effectiveness of the preached word, I think, is a sign of how strained he feels, but also, I think, a sign of how deeply committed he is to a verbal word. Yeah, and that verbal word, uh, you know, the, with uh, with Straton's emphasis and, of course, eventually leading him to preach, I believe, in Angelus Temple uh, for Amy Simple mm-hmm. McPherson, yes. you know, one of the interesting things you raise is is how that uh, on the on the right side of that two-party equation— uh, you had the rise of Pentecostalism as something that uh, that they also had to see as a great challenge. Yes, and you know some of them are tempted by it, like Straton, um, but others, you know, do find it kind of uh, very, very distressing and very disturbing. Um, I think in part because you know Pentecostalism, of course, veers from um, this real, I think, reformed emphasis on doctrine, on uh, correct doctrine, on the Bible itself, um, Pentecostalism, is in some ways closer to what um, to the sort of nebulous spirituality that somebody like Henry Van Dyke is actually interested exactly. in. Exactly. So on the one hand, Pentecostalism is tempting because you know someone like Utley or a- even Amy McPherson is a very very charismatic preacher and is someone who seems capable of drawing converts out of a modern city, which is what uh, Straton dearly dearly wants to do. But on the other hand, it's threatening, and of course this ends up in a schism in Straton's own congregation because some Pentecostal practices, um, laying on of hands and the like, uh, begin to seep in there, and uh, many many members of his congregation resign over it. But so, he, he stays committed until his death. Yeah, by the way, the uh, the idea of having uh, church members who are dissatisfied, you, you trace that with Straton on the right and also with, uh, with Coffin on the left. And uh, mm-hmm. that is, uh, I should say, William Sloan Coffin in particular, the rebellion from the men's study class uh, there at Riverside Baptist Church, of yeah. all things. And not exactly a place you expect uh, necessarily for that kind of thing to arise. I want to yeah. ask you, I want to stretch you just a bit here, if I may, and, and, sure. and ask you, when you when you trace the trajectory, which is a very minor theme in your book, uh, you, you you deal with uh, uh, Gresham Machen and his response to Fosdick, and, and then later on you pick up the the new evangelicals. Uh, in particular, you mention Akengay, and I would throw into that also Carl F. H. Henry. Sure. Uh, so so how do you read this story continuing unto the present? So if you could fast forward uh, to uh, to two thousand fifteen. 
where the, the major players and trajectories in your story, where, where do we find them now? Hmm. Um, in terms of uh, the memory of them? Or, well, or no, who I'm, are I'm, the I mean, today? Uh, yeah, who, who, who today represents oh, uh, these, these various strains? Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, that's a good question. And it's one I think that, uh, that is hard to answer because I, in a lot of ways, the world that I'm talking about is very unlike the uh, Protestant landscape that we see today. Um, the world uh, I'm speaking of is one in which I think conservative evangelicals, um, people like the Straitens or, or even um, Gresham Macon, um, feel very, very not at home. Um, in America. They find America threatening. They find America disturbing. Um, many of them oppose the First World War because they think um, it's, a, it's a war of pride and overweening, um, uh, an overweening pride in America. Um, but then after World War II, a lot changes. And you see, I think, the more conservative evangelicals like Graham, for instance, and I think many people today, um, you can you know, look at uh, leaders of the religious right, for instance, who feel very, very comfortable with the concept of America and who feel very much as though they're the custodians of America and they're the ones who are defending America against these outcroaches. They're no longer the people like Straton who is trying to scale this mountain of New York City, but they're now defending what American culture is. The people who are missing, I fear, though, are these liberal evangelicals, um, people who very much still believe in historic Christian tradition and the importance of, of the new birth and so on and so forth, but who are capable of adapting. Um, and I think in some ways the polarization of American religion along partisan lines has a, a great deal to do with that. There's very little room for um, middle ground anymore. As a theologian, oh, oh, you know, my, my, and, and mm-hmm. I am a theologian who is mm-hmm. evangelical and uh, and not a liberal evangelical, you know, I... To, to me, when I read your book, what I what I saw, and again, I I, I have a very great interest in Fosdick, uh, the man. I can still remember, I, I, and I I count Robert Motes Miller biography his, his biography mm-hmm. Fosdick is one of the best uh, best American religious biographies yet written. Yeah, I, I have a certain fascination with with uh, Fosdick, and and yet to me, the 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 bottom line lesson is, as a theologian, you you can't have what Fosdick wanted to retain once you have thrown overboard uh, all the uh, the doctrine that he explicitly mm-hmm. denied. And, and so the, this idea of liberal evangelicalism, I think, is actually very helpful in your book. But at the end of your mm-hmm. book, it it dies, more or less. It It, it is extinguished. Mm-hmm. It, yes, it starts to fade. You know, and I think um, to speak to that, um, and if I were to go back and, and rethink this book and add something to it or do it a bit differently— one thing I did do was focus on the Reformed denominations. I focused on Presbyterianism and, and the Baptist churches in New York City. And I think there's something to that um, as, insofar as the story is a tragedy, um, because I think it is very hard for somebody like Fosdick. Um, you know, he has so much trouble with, with his denomination and with the, Presbyter- um, with the Presbyterians as well. It's hard for someone like Henry Sloan Coffin, who is a Presbyterian, and dealing with Union Theological Seminary, and of course there's all sorts of issues going on there in the 20s as well, to maintain this sense of doctrinal integrity while at the same time trying to maintain um, what they call liberal evangelicalism. I wonder, though, if I were to look at at other forms of evangelical Christianity, um, um, the Methodists, for instance, who I spend less time on here, or even, um, boy, the Mennonites, right, if I range a bit further afield, into these um, traditions that are less doctrinally rigorous, 
whether or not something like this might uh, survive better. I found your book really interesting, very well documented, and uh, to your credit, uh, very, very well told. And and you kind of hinted at this in terms of your last response, but if there were to be a follow-up to this, uh, mm-hmm. whether you would do it or you would recommend it to someone else, what what would the follow-up, uh, the, the successor to this project be? Hmm. Uh, you know, I am actually building off some ideas um, in this book and working on another book now. Um, one thing that very much interests me, and one thing that it was in a lot of ways the impetus behind the story I told, there was this contest over the word evangelical. I'm going to fight really over what it means and who gets to claim the word and who defines it. And I, I say, you know, the, the, the last sentence of the book actually makes the case that, you know, evangelicalism is strongest when that definition is broadest. Um, I think w- what I would like to do now and what I'm working on is, is taking this story past World War II and I'm looking at the contest over another word, which is uh, the word Christian. And that's the project I have now, looking at the debates over the word Christian, who gets to claim it, and what it means really for America in the 20th century to be a Christian nation and some of the same characters pop up in that project as well. Professor Bowman, this has been a truly fascinating conversation. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Thank you. Matthew Bowman's new book, The Urban Pulpit, New York City and the Fate of Liberal Evangelicalism, raises a host of issues, all of them interesting. And furthermore, he's very adept at telling the tale. It's one of those books that explains what you see with your eyes when you walk the streets of Manhattan. And you look at those massive church buildings that themselves tell a story. Many of those buildings have been there for so long, even the people now walking the streets of Manhattan have no idea the story that they are actually telling. And as the city has become more secularized, those monumental church buildings tell of a religious faith that once dominated that culture in a way it no longer does now. That's where Matthew Bowman's category of liberal evangelicalism becomes very interesting. Today, when people talk about the evangelical movement, they're talking about it generally in opposition to the idea of liberal Protestantism. What prevails in terms of most of our understandings today is a so-called two-party system in American Protestantism. On the one hand, liberal mainline Protestant denominations, and on the other hand, conservatives, both within and without those denominations, who are defined by evangelical convictions in a more amorphous movement known as evangelicalism. The use of the term liberal evangelical for the last decades of the 19th century and the first decades of the 20th century is not unique to Matthew Bowman. There are a good number of other historians who are using the term in a similar manner. It isn't without its problems, but it isn't also without its insights. One of the things that we often miss now in terms of knowing the two-party system in American Protestantism in our generation is understanding that even that development wasn't so clear if you were to go back to the last years of the 19th century and follow into the first decades of the 20th. It wasn't so clear that the development would happen in these two different and very distinct directions, especially without some kind of center. I would argue that one of the major insights in terms of watching the development of these issues and the development of those two trajectories is that middle ground actually doesn't exist. And efforts to bring about that kind of middle ground essentially failed. But what you see in Matthew Bowman's work is the fact that there were those who were trying to forge some kind of middle way. But for the most part, they ended up in those liberal mainline Protestant churches, and they ended up theologically very much defined in terms of liberal theology. 
While for some time they wanted to keep some kind of evangelical vigor without evangelical conviction, over time it simply didn't work. Looking at Matthew Bowman's book, we also come to understand just how word-centered Protestantism was even in the early decades of the 20th century. Even when you're looking at the construction of these monumental church buildings, they were built for preaching. They were word-centered buildings, and the architecture of those buildings cries out the word-centeredness of the worship and the ministry of those churches. They were places where pulpits were at the center, metaphorically if not architecturally, and they were places where preaching was expected and preeminent. But as he tells the story, especially as he fast-forwards to more contemporary eras, in the church known as the Riverside Church there, in terms of Morningside Heights in Manhattan, he points to the fact that over time, those liberal churches ceased to be the places of pulpit centrality they had once been. Theologically, I would argue that's because a loss of confidence in the Bible as the Word of God led to a necessary minimalization of preaching as the central act of Christian worship. Over time, the two are undoubtedly tied to one another, and the story that Matthew Bowman tells indicates that not only in terms of the development of the Protestant mainline, but also the fact that you're looking at many of these buildings built for preaching in which very little preaching now takes place. Or at least the preaching takes place to an audience or congregation of very few people. I did really enjoy Matthew Bowman's book. On the one hand, I really enjoyed how he dealt with so many of the names that are so important, not only to the history of the church in New York City during these eras, but to American theology in the larger context, and in particular in the development of so many of the issues that eventually led to that two-party system of conservatives on the one hand and liberals on the other in American Protestant life. As is almost always the case, when these persons are considered by a skilled historian, their stories turn out to be even more interesting than you thought, and some of that came out in my conversation with Matthew Bowman. A lot more of it comes out in the book, and as one reads the book, one gains an understanding of so much more than the fate of liberal evangelicalism, as he calls it, in the city of New York during the period. One of the humbling recognitions that comes from reading a book like this is that we are still a part of the same conversation. The conversation, the controversies, the theological issues that were at stake then, they are now pretty much still at stake. In some cases, you can take names out and replace them with more contemporary names, and the discussion could almost be the same. That's a very humbling recognition. To walk on the streets of a city like New York is to see so many of these buildings, knowing that every one of them tells a story. We'll never know most of those stories, but thanks to Matthew Bowman, we know some of the most important of those stories, and we know them rather well. When you walk the sidewalks in your city and see the churches on your streets, you'll understand those stories better after you read The Urban Pulpit, New York City and the Fate of Liberal Evangelicalism by Matthew Bowman. Many thanks to Matthew Bowman for joining with me today. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thanks for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Mobler.